Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Sam Tracy. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland for a talk by National Security Archive Director Thomas Blanton. The title of today's talk is The Downsides of Government Secrecy. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time and it will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear the program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing today's talk is President of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations, George Look. Tom Blanton has been the director of the Independent Non-Governmental National Security Archive at George Washington University since 1992. Mr. Blanton won the 2004 Emmy Award for Individual Achievement in News and Documentary Research and, on behalf of the archive, received the George Polk Award in 2000 for piercing the self-serving veils of government secrecy. Mr. Blanton is the author or co-author of numerous books, and among other honors, Mr. Blanton's books have been selected by Choice Magazine as the Outstanding Academic Title of 2017, awarded the 2011 Link Cool Prize from the Society for Historians of, of American Foreign Relations, and recognized with, and it has been recognized with the American Library Association's James Madison Award citation in 1996. In 2006, the National Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame elected Mr. Blanton as a member, and Tufts University presented him with the Dr. Jean Mayer Global Citizenship Award in 2011 for decades of demystifying and exposing the underworld of global diplomacy. His articles have appeared in Diplomatic History, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, among other publications. He is a seri the series co-editor for the National Security Archive's online and book publications of more than a million pages of declassified U.S. government documents obtained through the archive's more than 60,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. I bet that keeps him busy. Tom, welcome to the Midcoast Forum. Thank you, George. Thank you very much, George. That was a really warm welcome, and I appreciate it very much. Um, I also want to do a shout out to Bob Rackmails, who heard me give a keynote speech this past summer to the diplomatic historians. And my working title was Got Any Classified Documents in Your Garage? <laughs> You know the reference, it's to the former vice presidents Mike Pence and Joe Biden and their garages in Indiana and Delaware, but I had to change my work and title on the spot because that week of my speech came out the photographs. I had to change to, got any classified documents in your bathroom? Remember those banker's boxes stacked up in the bathtub underneath the chandelier? All the historians laughed. A lot of them have banker boxes. None of them had a chandelier in the bathroom. <laughs> so uh, a real shout out to Bob because uh, the, the, the whole topic now 
is that I've worked on for my whole life suddenly is on the front pages. I got Anderson Cooper calling me up to come explain what's the levels of class, what's this confidential, what's this SCI thing. Um, it's, uh, it's been quite a run and the reality is those diplomatic historians, every one of them did have classified documents in their offices because I'm not talking about just the WikiLeaks leaked stuff. It's the duty of a historian to read that stuff to know what's there. Um, I'm talking about documents that one responsible authority in the government actually declassified and another responsible authority in the government thinks should still be secret. And this is the reality of massive overclassification. And I brought you my favorite example I'm holding up here, a book called White House Email that I did, gosh, 25 years ago. It dates me. We were bringing lawsuits against all the presidents, from Reagan actually all the way up through Biden. Then it was email. Now it's Jared Kushner's WhatsApp messages. But the same issue. Back then, government said email is not a record. We don't have to save it. It's just a little, like a telephone message slip. We can get rid of it. We brought a lawsuit, persuaded a federal judge to order, well, just do a little sampling of the National Security Council's profs messages. That was an old IBM email. So they disgorged a couple of thousand email messages. The declassification reviewers got to work. They were in a real hurry under a court order. They had a deadline. And so turns out, they weren't slips of messages. They were incredibly substantive. And this one, you can see the black blotches. This one is a very substantive message where it's an argument between the White House staff and the Secretary of Defense about how we're going to help Saddam Hussein against those nasty Iranians. This version came out of the inbox of the recipient, a guy named Colin Powell. He missed the meeting, so he's getting filled in. And when this was reviewed, this top chunk and this bottom chunk got blacked out on national security grounds, right? At the level of secret, which means some real damage, serious damage to U.S. national security. And about a week later, the reviewers got to the version of the author of the email. This was his version. And this time, the reviewer cut out the middle of it, right? You put the two versions together. You got the middle blacked out in one, and you got the top and the bottom blacked out in the other. You put them together, and you got pretty much the whole thing. And here's the punchline. It wasn't just two different opinions on what was secret. It was the same reviewer both times. <laughs> His name is stamped as the declassification authority. I called him up. I know him. He's like a senior guy, TS, SCI clearances, decades of experience with secrets. Lots. I said, Dave, Dave, what's up with this? He said, could you send those over so I can take a look? Sure. <laughs> he calls me back. Decent people mostly run our government. Serious public servants run our government and do things like this. And Dave says, well, Tom, there must have been something about Libya on this black blotch and, and Egypt. Well, you can read it over here. Libya and Egypt, there must have been something about them in the Washington Post that day. And so that just seemed super sensitive. So, of course, I cut that out. But the next week, 
No Libya, no Egypt, but a whole bunch about Iran. Man, got to black that out, right? So I said, Dave, you know, I'm going to carry this document around for the rest of my life <laughs> and show it to everybody I see just to make the case about the subjectivity of our national security classification system. And so the, the most fun <laughs> is just that We've spent, the National Security Archive started about the t just two years after the Mid-Coast Forum. I think it was the 1980s were a fertile time for people trying to deal with our country's foreign policy and encourage dialogue. Um, but the, the reality that I would say is you both see absurdities like this and there are real secrets. There's designs of a binary chemical warhead. You really don't want one of our neighbors to be able to build one of those, right? There's the identity of somebody who's talking to our embassy or to our defense attache who might get shot if their identity came out. There's, there's a, the bottom lines of our diplomatic negotiations before you actually close the deal. Those are real secrets. But my core argument, after 30 years of chasing secrets and pushing them out of the system, is that that's only maybe 20 to 25% of the total. And most of the rest is driven by other considerations. And so, and let me just go to the source on this. The founder of our modern security classification system reached his apogee of public fame when Matt Damon played him in the new movie Oppenheimer. You may have seen General Leslie Groves as the man who ran the Manhattan Project and built the atomic bomb, and Leslie Groves even testifies against Oppenheimer and gets him thrown out for his security clearances violations. And when Groves came around to writing his memoir with his oldest son, his son said, Dad, what's up with all that secrecy? Why did you need all that secrecy? And Groves said, well, well, son, well, obviously, the Nazis can't let them know about the bomb. And, 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 and the Japanese, not them. And, and the Soviets, they're our allies right now, but who knows how long that'll last. Can't let them. And besides, we got these other allies like the British and the French. We don't want them to get the bomb. Hmm. And then he gets a little lower on the list and it gets more complicated. After the British and the French came the United States Congress. <laughs> we don't want the Congress coming around interfering with our Manhattan Project. <laughs> Keep them over in that, those buildings in Washington. Hmm. Raises some issues constitutional-wise, don't you think? His next on the list, about up to number five or six now, he says, and those other agencies, the military services, we don't want them coming around and taking away pieces of our budget, competing with us. So I says, wow, Dad. That's and General Grove says, yes, and of course, we absolutely wanted the element of surprise. And... We had all these unruly scientists, and so the secrecy rules helped keep them under control, too. And there you have it, the mixed motives of the security classification system, the 
some real secrets at the top and a whole bunch of bureaucratic turf at the bottom. And I would just add the American public to that target list. It's easier for an official to do their business if curious public isn't peering in. And there are huge costs to this, not just the minimum estimate today is around 18 to 20 billion dollars just on the, the safes and the tempest protections for computers and the clearance investigations. There's huge dollar costs, but I think there are real costs in terms of outcomes and lives. Let's just start with General Groves, that first Trinity test that's the centerpiece of the Oppenheimer movie. It was a lot bigger than they thought it was going to be. And it went a lot higher in the atmosphere, the cloud, the mushroom cloud and the fallout plume, than they thought it was going to do. And it went hundreds of miles up to northeast New Mexico, and radioactive particles were picked up as far away as a Kodak factory in Indiana. Now, when the first reports of radiation sickness were coming back from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, General Grove said, no such thing, that's just Japanese propaganda, no way. We just got this year and published, to go with the movie, the internal memo from Grove's own scientists saying, General Grove's, you're wrong. This radiation stuff is really serious. And we're just really lucky that the winds were blowing from southwest to northeast when we set off Trinity because if they had been blowing from southeast to northwest, the plume would have gone right over Albuquerque. Because of that declassification, a couple thousand ranchers and sheep herders and their descendants are getting compensation today, but only this year because of 70 years of secrecy. Real costs to it. The whole nuclear arms race escalated under this system of almost absolute secrecy. We finally got, 50 years later, the nuclear war fighting plan for 1959. Now, I was, only, I was about four years old at the time, but, you know, it's interesting to contemplate what might have happened if we came to blows with the Soviets. And that, it turned out that the way the nuclear war planners built the war plan was every time they got an intelligence report about a new Soviet factory or a new Warsaw Pact airfield, they assigned another nuclear bomb to the target. So the requirements for numbers of bombs kept moving up into the thousands and ultimately the tens of thousands. In that plan, 179 nuclear bombs, each bigger than Hiroshima, was going to land on Moscow. After about the third one, the bombs are blowing up each other, right? Even wilder, 91 nuclear bombs were targeted on East Berlin. East Berlin, wait a second, there's a place called West Berlin. There thousands of American troops in West Berlin. <laughs> what happens when 91 bombs hit East Berlin? Was there an adult in the room at the Joint Strategic Targeting Planning staff when they came up with this? The secrecy, the whole process was top secret and that led to some real irrationalities. Um, it took decades for 
generals and civilians to get in there in the end of the Cold War to say, no, our requirements are really more like 1,000, 1,100, something like that. That's the New START Treaty, right? Not 30,000. But take the most famous nuclear crisis of all time. I think a lot of people in this room lived through it, the Cuban Missile Crisis. At the time, in 1962, the White House spin was, here's John F. Kennedy, steely-eyed hawk, finely calibrated brinksmanship, cover of Saturday Evening Post, eyeball to eyeball with the Ruskies, and they blinked, right? 30 years later, we get the tapes and the documents, and turns out John F. Kennedy was the number one dove in the first two meetings of his wise man, he's the only one in the room who doesn't want an invasion. And why? Because his first reaction to getting briefed on Soviet missiles in Cuba was, oh my God, this is a horrible provocation. Why, this, is, this would be like if we put missiles in Turkey. And his top aide, McGeorge Bunny, said, well, we did, Mr. President. <laughs> uh-huh. Suddenly you're getting into the interactivity of foreign policy. Suddenly you're getting into the security dilemma where defense on one side is understood as offense by the other. But John F. Kennedy, from the very first meeting, really? We put our missiles in Turkey. Two meetings later, the generals all say, we got to invade Cuba. We got to invade Cuba. It's the only way we got to take our credibilities on the line, our resolves on the line. Got to invade Cuba. And it's John F. Kennedy on the tapes who says, we're not going to have a very good war with all this blood and toil it's going to be if we could have gotten those Soviet missiles out by taking ours out of Turkey. Now we know from the evidence on the Soviet side that Svetlana Savranska and other brilliant historians have brought out, Soviets had a hundred tactical nuclear warheads in Cuba. If we'd gone and invaded Tens of thousands of U.S. Marines and Army would have been incinerated. They had moved a little cruise missile. Our intelligence agencies thought that cruise missile was a short-range shore defense missile with a conventional warhead. It actually had a nuclear warhead. Not a huge one, but about half the size of Hiroshima. And they had moved it 15 miles from Guantanamo. We do what the generals wanted that day. Guantanamo joins Hiroshima and Nagasaki as locations of nuclear use and war. And where it would end, nobody knows. It's uh, John F. Kennedy traded those missiles in Turkey. He sent his brother Bobby secretly over to see the Soviet ambassador. Bobby and the Soviet ambassador worked this out. The next day, the Kremlin announces the pullout of the missiles in Cuba. Bobby says, we're not going to invade Cuba, and we'll take ours out of Turkey after a decent interval. If you take yours out of Cuba, the next day the announcement comes, and the Soviet ambassador goes to meet Bobby at the Justice Department and says, oh, here's this little letter I wrote up just to, you know, put down in writing the terms of our deal. Bobby reads it, and according to the Soviet cable back, says, mm, I don't want this document in the file. This would be bad for my future political career. So that document is not in the American file. It's only in the Soviet file, right? But that's how you can figure out the secrecy behind it. Now we know just how close were those tactical nukes, submarines with a nuclear torpedo, U-2 planes off course, how close 
we came to blowing up the world by the recklessness of the Soviets putting those nukes in Cuba and our recklessness in threatening Castro, assassination plots, mongoose, you name it. Recklessness on both sides. And then in the crisis, both Kennedy and Khrushchev got really scared <laughs> and said, man, we're too close. And they both walked away. Eyeball to eyeball and they blinked. No, both sides blinked. It wasn't brinksmanship. It was blinksmanship. It's an interesting difference. But guess who wasn't in on the secret deal? The vice president of the United States, a guy named Lyndon Baines Johnson, was not in the small group that agreed to the secret deal of sending Bobby. And besides, he hated Bobby anyway. So Lyndon Johnson thinks, hmm, we can go eyeball to eyeball with those folks in Hanoi and they'll blink. They'll back down. Never understanding it's existential for the North Vietnamese. And two million Vietnamese die and 58,000 Americans and it's a tragedy for the world, for our country, for Southeast Asia. One of the costs of the secrecy. Just look at the arms race we're starting right now with the Chinese and how much do we understand about their motivations and how they see what we're doing. Is it really about pressuring Taiwan or is it about the threat they feel from our ballistic missile defense and how do they look at the world and meanwhile we are chasing every Chinese student in America out of our country under fear of their spying but there's a cost on the other side of that which is the cost of ignorance and misunderstanding of our society. Um, I'll come back to that message, but just think about Chinese motivations. One of our, our biggest successes was forcing the State Department to go collect all Henry Kissinger's memos, meeting transcripts, and telephone call transcripts. He had taken them with him when he left the State Department. Remind you of anybody? He put him at Pocanico Hills first where the Rockefeller estate, his patron, and then one of his lawyers said, wait a second, they could accuse you of stealing government property, so he puts him at the Library of Congress under seal until five years after his death. He's still alive at 100. So we went around and found copies of some of these transcripts in his AIDS files, and we put them together, and we published them. His lawyers threatened a lawsuit. We wrote back Finally, State Department agreed with us. They collected them. We get them loose. And suddenly, we've got transcripts of that famous meeting between Mao Zedong, Richard Nixon, and Henry Kissinger. You've seen the famous photographs. It's like, there's Joe and Lai. There's Henry. There's Mao. There's Nixon. There's a translator. All right? Or actually, I think Nixon and Mao are in the middle, and Joe and Henry are on each side. And the reason we have a transcript is that Kissinger took his 29-year-old aide with him, a guy named Winston Lord, who's went on to great career, 29 years old at the time, and he's taking notes. And there's this moment where Mao Zedong says to Henry, so you're going to run for president after Mr. Nixon finishes his two terms? And Henry says, well, you know, Mr. Chairman, I, I'm a, I wasn't born in the U.S., so I can't run for president, and, uh, you know, so I won't be doing that. But your translator she was born in Brooklyn and went to the Little Red Schoolhouse. She could run for president of the United States. Surreal moments of international diplomacy that you get from the former secret documents. Now, the punchline of the story is the 
end of the meeting, the Chinese have had their photographers there. Kissinger had cut out the Secretary of State, Bill Rogers. He's not in the room, even though he was in Beijing. The Chinese bring back the black and white photo. And it's not just the four middle people. There's Winston Lord on the end, the 29-year-old assistant taking notes. And Kissinger yells at the Chinese, says, no, 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 no. You've got to cut off that right-hand side of the photograph. We can't have it published that Winston was there and the Secretary of State was not. So if you look really carefully at the iconic historic photograph of that meeting, you'll see the shadow of a wingtip shoe <laughs> over on the right-hand side. That's what's left of Winston Lord. Well, but to get back to Chinese motivation, we took these transcripts to Beijing in 2004. We do this whole presentation. Here's, here's the American version of what you all said. And the Chinese were fascinated. All these diplomats, historians in the room, they're just amazing. Wow, this is what Mao actually said. Oh, this is what Zhou Enlai, Wang Hua said this. Oh, Deng Xiaoping said that. We had the transcripts. They said, this is very interesting. The next day, they took us over to their diplomatic academy. Turns out, they teach a case study on exactly this episode, except it's not called Nixon Kissinger's Brilliant Diplomacy Opening to China. <laughs> it's called Playing the American Card. Seriously. Turns out that the Soviets and the Chinese were at war on the border in January 1969 and killing thousands of people on each side. And four old communist marshals who were at a factory for their own protection from the Red Guard wrote a strategy memo to Chairman Mao saying, you know what? We got these bad near barbarians, the Soviets, right on our border. You know what we got to do? We got to bring in the far barbarian to counteract them. Bring in the far barbarian. And the case study actually shows they even planned Nixon's arrival at the airport in Beijing to mimic a thousand-year-old episode of several barbarian chieftains coming in with tribute for the emperor. We missed it. It's not in Kissinger's memoirs. A little too subtle for us Americans. But it speaks to sort of points of view of the other. These, these documents are not truth with a capital letter, but they give you that sense of contingency of the other, of the interactivity of security issues of all kinds. And, the, and they restore some contingency. People make choices. Leaders make choices. Accidents happen. Misperceptions often rule the day. And the documents can restore some of that and prevent the kind of thinking that we all fall into. It's a, historians fall into it, and the American public fall into it. The idea that just because things are how they are, they had to turn out that way, right? Retrospective determinism. Not true. There's lots of turning points. There's turning points in how we got to the point where Putin is invading Ukraine. There's turning points on the, the tragedy in the Middle East that's on the front of my mind these days. And, and uh, you know, Putin has already achieved this strategic disaster for Russia, cut off the oil and gas connections with Europe, turned Russia into a pariah state, broke all his treaty commitments under the Helsinki Act and bilateral with Ukraine, so who's going to want to sign a treaty with him anymore? Consolidated Ukraine around an anti-Russian identity, um, left Russia playing second fiddle to China, which is supremely uncomfortable, I think. 
And at the same time, he, Putin has consolidated his own population. You can see it in some of the release documents that the Biden administration has done as part of its effort to make sure the public knew what was going on before and after the invasion. I give him a lot of credit for that. It's a different way to approach secret intelligence information, to actually use it for public education rather than hoard it so your own vice president doesn't know what's going on. On the Middle East, this is sort of, I'll, I'll try to end with this because I think it has a lesson for the Mid-Coast Forum. And that is, on the Middle East, we did one huge long project with a former New York Times reporter named Patrick Tyler. Wrote a book about covering nine presidencies in the Middle East. And he didn't come up with any solutions to what are often intractable problems. The, the title of his book, Nine Presidents, A World of Trouble. Yeah. Hundreds of people are dying today from that world of trouble. But one thing he did show, and I talked a little bit about this last night, one thing that he did show was that when diplomatic engagement and talks and dialogue was at a high level, violence dropped. There was an inverse proportion between the amount of engagement and dialogue among the various enemies and the level of violence people felt compelled to resort to. This is a fascinating lesson, it seems to me, for all of us in dealing with the world, that even though none of those high points in the Middle East, Camp David, the peace between Israel and Egypt, or Oslo Accords looked like maybe peace between the Palestinians, and none of them came to a solution but just that they were happening meant people had more hope. People were less inclined to go to the sticks and stones and grenades and rockets and everything else that kills. So I, I will end there with that core concept. The more engagement, the less violence in the world. We've still got engagement, I would argue, to do with Russia. We have mutual interests in controlling nuclear weapons. We have a lot more engagement to do with China to head off any future world wars. And what y'all do on a regular basis, what, 460 times, if I heard George correctly, was engagement with issues of the day and with each other. And that is core to us all somehow making a better world. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. What we do here and I, is to collect the written questions from the audience and I go through and censor them. <laughs> no, I, I try to, I try to put questions secrets that are secrets and more <laughs> secrets. <laughs> I try to put, I try to put ones that are similar together, so that uh, you know, if there's a topic that looks like it's really, you know, key here, uh, we make sure we we get it covered. And I always take the opportunity to be the first one to ask a question, uh, and you've kind of answered the main question I had, and I wondered if you could elaborate a little more on the value. Of, of ongoing talks with, between us and the Russians or us and the 
and the Chinese, it seems like these are kind of at a low, one of the lowest levels in many, many years right now. I know in the Cold War we had a much more extensive set of contacts. How do we get those back? George, I think you know the value of those talks much better than I do. You've been inside them. I just read about them in the transcripts afterwards and then see the impact on policy. But the impacts on policy are really profound. And there were achievements on controls on nuclear weapons even in the middle of the Cold War, even when tensions were at the highest, even when we were at log even when the Soviets were inside Afghanistan and we were arming the Mujahideen. We still were able to do arms control talks. And I guess the main takeaway I have, I think, about ongoing talks with your adversaries is when Svetlana and I got the documents on Reagan and Gorbachev. She got them from the Gorbachev Foundation. We took them back to the Reagan Presidential Library and said, we've got the Soviet version, where's ours? <laughs> Still took them eight or 10 years to declassify the record, but we put them together in a big book called The Last Superpower Summits. And a core finding there was that just the two of them getting together, the main contribution Reagan made was in those talks with Gorbachev at Geneva and Reykjavik, and Gorbachev found out that Reagan wanted to abolish nuclear weapons. And we have the diary of Gorbachev's top national security advisor, Anatoly Chernyayev, where Chernyayev writes, you know, finally Gorbachev is realizing what good are all these nuclear weapons and all this repressive apparatus if that guy is not going to push the button. So the talks, I think, have value in and of themselves but fundamentally, they reduce the sense of threat. And that is where they make an enormous contribution to the future of the world. Thank you. If someone here wants to know a little bit more about the mechanics of what goes on with classification, who can initiate classification of a document and who can declassify it? About, um, there are four million 4.2 million people in the federal government and the military and a lot of people in this room had them at, have security clearances. And most secrets get classified derivatively, which means there was some original real secret that an original classification authority would create, say, calling that conversation between Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik top secret, right? So. The National Security Council Executive Secretary would have made that top secret at that moment. Um, who can declassify? So, and then anyone who used any part of that transcript in their own memos, that subsequent document was classified because of the original classification. The declassification, I would say that process is happening full bore. There was a theory of those of us on the outside, reformers, that if we just reduce the number of original classifying authorities lower and lower and lower, we reduce the number of secrets. We were wrong because there's this factor called computers. It's not carbon paper anymore with four copies like during Eisenhower. A computer can create an infinite number of copies of a given item or document and so Millions of derivative secrets get created every year. They can't even, so many they can't even count them. The internal watchdog office, Information Security Oversight Office, has given up even estimating 
the numbers of secrets. A Harvard professor named Peter Gallison did a study about 10 years ago where he compared the total amount of information coming into the Harvard library systems, which is the biggest in the world, to the total amount of information estimated by that little office to be going into the classified vaults. He said the Gallison's conclusion was, was about three to one classified to open. Three to one. And, and there's a really interesting, one of our senior fellows who passed away last year had this theory that the classified world is sort of like dark matter in the universe, which is you're in the public, you can't see it. <laughs> but if you did, it would help make sense of what you can see and then bring a little more clarity to the physics of our existence. And I love that metaphor. And the declassification process is broken. And a lot of people at these senior levels, like the, like the Dave, who helped me with this email, um, have authorities to declassify. But the backlogs are about 12 years for presidential records now. So we keep pushing the envelope. But they're just, frankly, totally overwhelmed by the tsunami of electronic records. And it's going to take a lot more work from all of us to, to get that stuff out of the system. And here's someone who wants to know if you could speak more about, and they, this is, says Trump's, but I think Trump and Pence and uh, Obama, uh, all of them, the classified documents problems. Are these problems in national security? Are these problems in just uh, sloppiness or, uh, or, or whatever? I mean, are these documents, any evidence any of these documents are ever revealed to anyone? There's still more shoes to drop in all those investigations, so frankly, I don't know. But what we know right now, or what we think right now, is those documents were not revealed to anybody else. I mean, there was a lock on that garage in Wilmington because there was a really expensive Corvette also in that garage, right? President Biden's. Um, Pre, uh, right, former right, Vice President right. Pence, his garage, nobody was going through there except his family. Mar-a-Lago, it's not clear. I mean, it was a club that people could join by paying $200,000, and there were folks tromping the grounds of Mar-a-Lago. One Chinese national got arrested with, what, how many extra thumb drives and three burner phones in her purse? what's she doing there? And did she know about those boxes in the basement? There's still no clear evidence that those were revealed to anybody or did the damage. But going back to your question, is it problem with the national security system or is it sloppiness? I'd say it's both in the sense that the system vastly overclassifies so much, there's bound to be sloppiness in the system. But then you throw in the other dynamic, and I, I joke about it, I call it White House altitude sickness, <laughs> where you get that high up in government, you feel entitled. And you know, we've seen it, Republicans, Democrats, Sandy Berger, former National Security Advisor, taking top secret documents out of the National Archives in his socks. Just because they were closing the reading room at 3.30 and he wanted to keep reading and uh, take them home. And he had been the former national security advisor, so of course he had the right to do that. No, he doesn't. And I think the Mar-a-Lago phenomenon is more of that. Those are great souvenirs. I mean, you know, you show somebody the blinding orange secret cover sheet, top secret SCI, 
wow, you know, this is classified. They have tape recordings of former President Trump at Bedminster saying to a visitor, you know, this is top secret. When I was president, I could declassify it. Well, I can't anymore. <laughs> it takes it back. Wow. Yeah, sloppiness, overclassification, and a kind of recklessness about real secrets because under some of those documents are the identities of people who could get killed. As someone who wants to know whether the archives get to see um, recently declassified documents or documents that are recent that have been declassified, and if not, aren't you just making your classification message retrospectively? <laughs> using examples like the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, I would say I'm making, taking the lessons retrospectively because we have way more evidence on those episodes than we have on more recent episodes. Um, there's this fascinating dividing line in the... Uh, biography of Winston Churchill that up until May 1940, this is a prize winning by Sir Martin Gilbert, up to May 1945, the biography is full of what Winston Churchill read every morning, which was the signals intelligence, the intercepts of what the Germans were up to. And suddenly in May 1945, the Gilbert volume, it's as if Churchill stopped reading the signals intelligence. Well, we know he kept reading them. Gilbert just didn't have any access to them. They weren't declassified. It took decades for the fact that we were reading the Germans' traffic or the Japanese Navy traffic, that the, our victories in the Pacific were the result of our signals intelligence as much as they were the result of brave Navy sailors and fighters. So it took decades, and that's part of our problem with the secrecy system is the more recent material is much harder to get and for some good reasons. I mean, Avril Haines gave specifics on units of Russian tank formations at the border with Ukraine that a Russian intelligence officer could read and say, wow, I, they're, they're listening to our tank commander traffic. We better put encryption on those phones they probably stopped being able to gather that intelligence. In the ordinary run of events, no intelligence officer would give you that much detail because it gives away a real capability that could come in really handy down the road. I mean, there's a trade-off there. And, and Haynes and Biden made a decision, no, this is a bigger deal here. We're trying to say to Putin, don't do this. It's not gonna work out well for you. They were trying to say to the Allies, you better be in on this because a really bad things going to happen. And they're trying to say to the Ukrainians, get ready, get ready, they're coming, right? And I think all those were good reasons for risking sources and methods. That, but it's a, it's a trade-off. And I think that's where the National Security Archive diverges from some of the kind of WikiLeaks thinking, where you basically just take whatever you can get and throw it up against the wall. I don't think... Julian Assange should have that power. I also don't think the government should be prosecuting him because it brings into question all kinds of issues about a free press and about publishing. But there you have the real tensions in our democracy. Um, but the problem of the levels of secrecy and what is closed to the public to know 
is an ongoing problem, not just for historians and documents fetishists like me, but it's a problem for all of us as citizens about how we're going to hold our officials accountable if we don't really know, if what we know is the White House spin about Kennedy, right, or the White House or the, what President Trump says about his perfect telephone conversation with Zelensky on Ukraine. Well, about three weeks later, we got that document released. And, and Trump is blackmailing Zelensky to dig up dirt on Biden and holding up the military aid. Perfect. But you wouldn't know it from what the White House said about it. You'd only know it from seeing the document. And someone wants to go to the solution to this problem as opposed to the problem itself and asks, what are the best three steps in your view to better set the classification process on a track to hold our secrets in a, to a better standard? What would you suggest we do? Right now, original classifying authorities are supposed to put, this by executive order, a date for the release of the document, on the document, when they classify. There's a drop-down menu on your computer screens as what level of classification. They probably need a lot more training and what the levels of damage are and all that stuff, but they assign a date. It says, well, if I'm classifying it now, it's 2023, 2035, you can declassify this. Right now, one of the reasons the system is completely gummed up is nobody takes those dates seriously. They don't generate an automatic anything. All those documents still go back into the review process, line by line, page by page, an incredible waste of resources. What really needs to be on the document is, is this intelligence sources? Is this weapons design information? Is this, or is this short-term diplomacy? And then take the date certain. And then have that date be an automatic sunset. And I think that's the only way we're going to get out from under this deluge of the historic and the incoming electronic secrets. That would be number one, sunset on the secret. Number two would probably be that training, better training, better sense of the damage. Um, one of our best customers, I should say, over time, one of the ways we survive, we're about $3 million annual budget. About a million of it comes from university libraries who subscribe to this massive digital National Security Archive database. We put all these curated index collections in there. And um, one of our best customers has been the Central Intelligence Agency because they want to know what's been declassified because they don't know. <laughs> oh, that's been declassified. Oh, well, we could review this differently, right? So, but few agencies take such a rational approach to it, and instead they hunker down, they got a set of rules and a security classification guidance that says anything about nuclear weapon location is highly classified, restricted data. And so even today, earlier this year, three months ago, the Pentagon reviewers redacted the words Turkey and Italy on a history of the Cuban Missile Crisis of Jupiter missiles were in Turkey and Italy. Because the guidance says nuclear weapon location, that's a big secret. We don't want anybody to know where our nuclear weapons are located. But that's 70, 60 years ago. So number one step is sunsets. Number two, better training on the front end. And I guess number three would be more freedom of information requests from folks like us so that you have a demand market pressure on the system to disgorge 
if there's 12-year backup already, <laughs> is it going to improve the problem or make it worse? It's, I think, the only way to get the attention of Congress to say, you got to fix the National Archives of the United States is a broken system. We did an audit that said, showed the National Archives today compared to 30 years ago, holds exponentially more records because of electronic records, right? It's like a factor of over 200 greater number of records than they had in the 90s. And their budget is basically the same in real dollars. Flatline budget, exponentially more records that they're responsible for. You know, I was I told Anderson Cooper, I don't even think the National Archives budget is, costs as much as one of the Marine One helicopters that uh, the president gets flown around in and boy the CNN people are tough they fact checked me in real time it wasn't one it was two <laughs> marine one helicopters that carried the president around the national archive entire budget of the national archives responsible for our historical legacy is the equivalent of two helicopters so in my testimony to the senate earlier this year I said you know, you guys need to start thinking about a fleet of helicopters for the National Archives. You know, at least four or five or six, right? Then we, we might catch up. <laughs> One more uh, procedural question and then a, a more general question. Can an unclassified document, which is the subject of a Freedom of Information Act request, be retroactively classified in response to the request? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> Although... There are some limits. The executive order on classification says you can't do it if that unclassified document is already in some way public. In other words, it has to actually be an unclassified document that can be recovered from the unclassified world. And then you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. You make a mess, it spreads all over your hands. Right, but you can do it. But that's part of the absurdity of the system. And I'll give you a great example. We had to bring a lawsuit. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld was infamous for sending hourly memos. His staff called them snowflakes because they came down like blizzards. They dropped on everybody working in the Defense Department, and George was one of them. And sometimes they were just requests for information, and sometimes they were just, you know, creed occurs. And one of those snowflakes, you know, one of those snowflakes... Donald Rumsfeld asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his top intel guy, this is about 2003, 2004, and the, it's one sentence, but it's an idiot savant sentence. It says, are we killing the terrorists faster than our violence is creating more of them? <laughs> he didn't get much of an answer. <laughs> but boy, that's the right question to ask, right, about the global war on terror. But Rumsfeld deliberately did not classify any of his snowflakes. Why? Because he wanted to be able to dictate them at home when he woke up on the side of the bed. He had a little tape recorder, wanted to be able to dictate them in the limousine, on the airplane. He deliberately didn't classify because that would mean some special handling. So we find out about these. A few of them leaked. And then he publishes about 1,000 of the 60,000 to support his memoir. And we go back to the Pentagon for Freedom of Information Office and we've had Freedom of Information requests for all these snowflakes for, for years. And you just gave some to him, but you didn't give anything to us. What's going on? And another year passes, another year passes. Finally, we have a regular um, 
meeting with the Pentagon's Freedom Information Office where we negotiate our FOIA request and their burden. We prioritize some, we drop some others, and in that meeting, this top officer, retired colonel, looks at us and said, you know, I think you're going to have to sue us. <laughs> this was new. I've not really had a government agency <laughs> say to me, you're going to have to sue us. <laughs> And he says, no, 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 we at the Freedom Information Office, we think you ought to be able to get these snowflakes, but the folks over the joint staff, they think they, they all should have been classified to begin with, and that Rumsfeld was really out of bounds not to classify it. So they're trying to retrospectively classify. So if you just sue us, that'll give us some leverage inside with the debate, and we can start really. Well, they released 59,617 ultimately, and... I'm amazed that they kept those because I know when they came down to the staff, they often came down on the scrap of paper that he'd written on. And I don't think a lot of us kept those. They must have made a copy of them somewhere, put them in the file. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one final question I think we have time for. And this is going to stump you a little bit because it's, it's kind of asked uh, for, for you to think on your feet. <laughs> Are there any examples of creative, out-of-the-box diplomacy that the archives have revealed, especially diplomatic efforts that are very little known? Have you uncovered some, some big things that, uh, you know, we kind of skipped over because they didn't seem important, but your internal documents showed were, were, were huge, I think, huge issues? I think the greatest national security success of the last 30 years is one that is now dissed in almost all the countries involved. And that was the Nunn-Lugar program, one of the only congressional initiatives in foreign policy to make a difference, that moved about $400 million in the early years of Pentagon money over for the dismantling of the former nuclear weapons left by the Soviet Union at its dissolution. Remember the great fear of Jim Baker and George H.W. Bush was that Soviet Union was going to fall apart and it was going to be the phrase Yugoslavia with nukes. Right? The Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney in 1989 December goes on Meet the Press and he says, you know, the Soviets got 25,000 of these nuclear warheads and they're all over the place in that, in that country that's falling apart. And the host says, well, do you think they're going to be able to keep them secure? And Cheney says, well, you know, they got a good authoritarian heritage, and I think maybe they'll be able to secure probably 99% of them. Well, okay, do the math. That leaves 250 nuclear warheads on the loose. <laughs> One of them just went off <laughs> back there. Think about that as an existential disaster for our world in 1991 to today. And yet, not one of those warheads went off. Why? Because some brilliant people, Sam Nunn and Dick Luger, Dem and Republican, got together, moved the money out of the Pentagon budget over to dismantle Soviet, got partners on the Russian side who were real heroes of this story. Svetlana and I have been working to document this because if we ever get back to any notions of mutual security, we need to learn some lessons from Nunn-Lugar. The Russians finally pulled out in 2012, but there were periods in the 90s and the early 2000s where half the energy in Ukraine 
was from fuel rods sent back by the Russians for Ukrainian nuclear power plants. Fissile material had been taken out of warheads that had originally been on Ukrainian soil. And as part of the Nunn-Luger deal, the warheads got dismantled by the Russians because they had the expertise, and the fissile material got sent back. I think 20% of America's nuclear power, electricity, came from dismantled Russian, Russian dismantled warheads, Soviet warheads that prevented existential danger to our world. That's one of the greatest successes of American foreign policy, of Russian foreign policy, of Ukrainian foreign policy. And yet, in Ukraine, the debate today is, oh, we should have held on to those. No, they were little Chernobyls, and they were all going to blow up. In Russia, it was, oh, that was forced disarmament when we were weak and we were on our knees. In the United States, it's, oh, non Luger, we were giving away money to the Russians. What were we thinking, right? And nobody is taking the lessons is, that's how you can construct mutual security, where you understand the other, the other's incentives, you find partners, you do dialogue, you raise the level of engagement, you reduce the level of violence. Well, I thank you very much. It's very, very interesting. Is it good? <laughs> very good, very good. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today's program featured a talk by National Security Archive Director Thomas Planton, who recently spoke at the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland. If you missed part of the program or want to listen again, you can also find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Look on radio to access this program and many other archives speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine, and Speaking in Maine is produced by me, Sam Tracy. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.